take your Bibles out. We're going to take a couple of minutes and study from God's Word. Let God teach us about Himself. Uh, I uh, would also solicit, as I think about uh, Diana getting ready to be gone, uh, not only uh, pray for us as we travel, uh, as well as uh, Rebecca and Ken, um, but also as uh, I invite you to pray for uh, my upcoming trip, the Lord willing, to Sierra Leone. That's becoming more real as days pass by, and uh, with uh, Steve and Alan Greeley are uh, also going to be traveling to get. We're going to be traveling together to Sierra Leone, Africa, to preach the gospel there. Uh, more and more opportunities are coming up. We have uh, added sort of about six more lessons uh, over a period of three days in the local college. There, we're going to be able to participate in some of those classes and to teach the gospel in the Priscilla Street Church there. So we're 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 excited about that. So I pray for your. Uh, I, pr- I ask you to pray for us as we uh, prepare for that trip. Uh, as the members here realize, we've been studying through uh, as a theme First and Second Timothy and Titus, and that's our plan for the rest of the year. We've come this month to the end of First uh, Timothy in chapter six, and I want to go back to that passage uh, in the final lesson concerning our uh, concerning uh, our uh, exercise toward godliness um, in First Timothy chapter six and verse thirteen. There's a part of my sermon preparation that maybe is more difficult than other parts of it, elements that give me more trouble when I'm putting together a lesson. And I suppose one of the most difficult parts of me putting together a lesson is coming up with a title. You know, you got to have a title, right? you got to have something that you call the sermon, goes on the first slide, puts at the top of the page. Uh, and it's a struggle for me sometimes to choose a title for my sermon. Sometimes I change two or three times by the time I get through, and one paper will say one thing and one will say another, and the slide will say something else. Sometimes they just leave it blank until I get to the end and try to figure it all out at the end. But the title for today's lesson, interestingly enough, sort of jumped out at me. It was sort of there all along, and I thought, that's what I'm going to call it. And I thought I would maybe share that with you, that what we're going to talk about this morning is doxological motivations. Now, I know I just gave it all away as to what we're going to talk about. Uh, or, or maybe you have an urge to leave. I don't know. But, uh, but we'll talk about this aspect of 1 Timothy chapter 6, what I think are what might be referred to as doxological motivations. In chapter, 13, uh, chapter 6 and verse 13, the Apostle Paul speaks to the young evangelist at the end of his letter, and he says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which He will display at the proper time. He was the blessed and only Sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To Him be glory, but to Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. The last part of that, Verse 15 and 16, as it's designated, is sometimes referred to as a doxology. And we'll talk about how that fits into this. But Paul begins with the words charge. And he says, I charge you. And the word charge here in the original language is perangalia, which means to give a command. It's interesting that the New King James Version and some of the other versions use the word urge. And as I look at that translation and I look at what the word actually means in the original language, I come to the conclusion that urge may not be quite a strong enough word as what Paul's saying here to Timothy. Vine says that it means to give a mandate or to give a command or even a military order to charge someone to do something. So what Paul is telling Timothy is, I, you need to take this seriously. 
This is imperative that you do this, that you keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach. So Paul's telling Timothy to keep a command. Well, what command is he talking about? Well, many view the term, the term commandment here in verse 14 as a reference not to a specific commandment of God that we might go back in the text and try to identify one, but rather to all the things that Paul has told Timothy up until this point, to all of the charges found in this letter, that he is to not allow other Gospels to be preached, that he's to preach the Gospel in its purity, that he's to stand up to those who are false teachers. And certainly those things are involved in, I believe, this aspect of commandment. It's also may very well be true that this particular term, the commandment, is a general reference to the gospel itself. That Timothy is to wage the good warfare and he's to hold faith of the good conscience. He is to make sure, you see, that he, uh, that he charges those who would teach a different gospel to not teach any other gospel. And that what's at the center of all of that, you see, is the revealed message of God that Paul the Apostle has given unto him. And so what Paul's charging Timothy to do is to teach the gospel, to preach the message, to keep the commandments in his own life in in a way that is unstained, in a way that is free from reproach. As we mentioned before last week, that what Paul may really be referencing in this whole section is that Timothy has a responsibility to keep the message and himself pure. That he is to do both. And that one depends, the success of one depends upon the other. But what I want us to focus our attention on this morning is this aspect of how does Paul motivate Timothy to keep the charge before him? If this is a command and he's telling him to do it, is that enough? Or does Paul present here other motivations as to why Timothy should obey God? And that leads me maybe to a more present and compelling question as we make reference to ourselves. is why do you want to obey God? What motivates you? What motivates me to obey God and to be an individual who pursues godliness or exercises godliness in his life? Well, there are probably several answers we could give to that question if it's asked to us personally. I obey God because I want to go to heaven because I realize the great blessing that God has from store for those who serve Him. And the other side of that is I don't want to go to hell. I realize that God's a God of justice and that God's a God uh, of vengeance and therefore God will very well punish the evildoer. We might look at it a more horizontal plane that there are many people who serve God because they want all the relationships to work out. They want to be happy. They want to have a, ful- a fulfillment of their life that they seemingly don't believe they can have without God. And certainly they can't have without God. But so there's this aspect you see that they want to be fulfilled in life. And they obey God for that reason. Or maybe they obey God because you see they've, it's a way they've been taught and grown up all along is to serve God and to function in that way. But I want to propose to you that the answer contained in this text is none of those. The answer Paul puts in this text has to do with God Himself. That the, the, the characteristics of God, the nature of God Himself, becomes in this particular passage a fundamental reason why Timothy and everyone else should do what God tells them to do and should live godly lives. That the real answer to the question that Paul gives is that what should motivate you is God and who he is. So in the first four verses of our text, Paul presents six attributes of God which stand at the heart of why Timothy should keep the charge. Paul wants Timothy to see who God is. Not that Timothy doesn't already know, but to present this within the text itself, within the letter itself, so that unmistakably, what's at the heart of this is not ourselves, but rather who God is. 
I was at the visitation for uh, uh, the uh, at the church building for Oscar's sister yesterday, and as they were, within the uh, building, they were playing a song that I had never heard before. It was a lady singing a song. Well, I don't know the t- title of the song, but over and over again, the refrain from the song you see was, "I worship you because of who you are." And I heard that, and I thought. That, that is so profound. It's a simple phrase, but it's so profound. And as I was thinking about what I was going to talk about this morning, I thought, that really fits. I worship you. Not because it makes me feel good. Not because you see it sifts into my life. Not because you see other people worship God. I worship you because of who you are. That the character and the identity of God is at the heart of this. Now, most conclude, as I mentioned, that in verse 15 and 16, the words that are first 15 and 16 consist of a doxology, as it's called. And a doxology is simply a short hymn of worship or praise to God. Many times that's committed to memory that individuals can say over and over again or that can be used in a worship service that depicts the nature of God or calls an individual to worship. It may be, and some suggest, that, that, that Paul presents sometimes in his letters the, idea, the, the words of a doxology or words that are, were familiar to Christians at that time to remind them of this call to worship, and, to, and that this may be an occasion when that takes place. What we might notice is that Paul opens up the letter to 1 Timothy with very similar words in chapter 1, verse 17. That there again, as he's talking about how God has been merciful to him, in chapter 1, verse 17, he talks about who God is himself, that God is eternal, that God, you see, um, is uh, immortal, that he is the true God. And I believe there's reason for that. And I, that's some, somewhat what I want to talk about and what I want us to focus our attention on this morning is that understanding who God is is fundamental. It is absolutely essential that we see God for who He truly is because that's a way in which God motivates us. That there are truly doxological motivations within the text of the Scriptures themselves. So, Paul starts out by the aspect here of I charge you, he says, in the presence of God, and then later on in the verse he says, and of Jesus Christ who gave the confession before Pilate. Now that's an interesting way to present this charge. And we look at it in the aspect of motivation. Is your conduct influenced by who you're with, who's standing next to you, or who's in the room with you? Now we might like to think that that's not so, but I would suggest that probably universally it's so at some level that we are influenced in how we act maybe and react to others by who's in the room, who's watching. I know certainly that's the way we grow up, isn't it? That if mom and dad are around, if they're in the room, we might act different than if mom and dad are not around. Certainly, my brothers and I, that was paramount to how we had acted, whether or not mom was, knew what was going on as she was watching. Now you hope to mature and grow up to see, recognize that you don't have to have that watchfulness over you. But the idea here that God is watching, that God is in our presence is a recurring theme within those who are motivating other individuals to be righteous before God. That God is always in our presence and that He strives to be within our presence. That He's not far away from us. Not only in the aspect of looking over and judging our behavior, but that God is attentive to what we're doing. That He cares about us. And though His attentiveness to His people, the fact that He's not far away and far removed, you see, uh, and not abstract from us, is a powerful thought. Paul motivates the Athenians that... Who, who, he's, who he's leading to understand who the true God is. He motivates the Athenians to search after God by assuring them He's not far from every one of us, he says in Acts chapter 17, verse 27. Now in that very context as well, the presence of God implies accountability. That He's one who's watching. And so Paul may very well be mentioning this to Timothy for that very reason. 
that I'm charging you and giving you this order because in the presence of God and the presence of Jesus Christ because they care about whether or not you do this too. That this is about them. It's about God Himself. And so then he mentions God. The presence of God who gives life to all things is the first characteristic or phrase that identifies who God is. The power of God is displayed in His unique ability to create, to give life to all things. Now, when we, just, when we talk about God as being the one who gives life to all things, I would suggest there are at least three elements or perspectives where that's borne out in Scripture. First, that He is the creator of all things. That He brings all things into existence. Certainly we recognize that's how the Bible starts out. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And from the very beginning of Scriptures to the end of the Scriptures, God never, the Scriptures never veer away from that very clear definition of who God is that makes Him unique and distinguished from every other individual, that God is the one who can create. God is called the Creator. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28. Have you not known, have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary? His understanding is unsearchable. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 1, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, Remember now your Creator in the days of your youth. And Paul spoke about those who had gone over into idolatry in Romans chapter 1. They, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. So God as the Creator clearly is in play within Scriptures and He is the giver of all things that exist. But also, God sustains life. And again, that's a unique characteristic of God. Nothing else and no one else can sustain life except God Himself. The people in Nehemiah chapter 9, as they come to realize their sin and they're turning back to God in chapter 9 of Nehemiah, they praise God and they say, You alone are the Lord. You have made heaven, the heavens of heaven, with all their host, the earth and everything in it, the seas and all that's in them, and you preserve them all. The host of heaven worships you, they say. So God not only creates it, but He keeps it going. He preserves it. Paul says in Colossians that in Jesus Christ as God all things consist or continue to exist. In Hebrews chapter 1, the writer of Hebrews described Jesus Himself as the, in His divine attributes in this way. He says, "...though through whom also He made the worlds, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person, He upholds all things by the, power, by the word of His power." So God not only creates it, but He keeps it going. He sustains it. And then maybe the most compelling element of God as the God who gives life is in the image of resurrection. That God is the one who brings back the dead. That He's the one you see who has the divine prerogative not only to create, to, to create life physically from that which is dead, but also to recreate life spiritually from that which is dead. And that becomes a powerful motivation to those who are deciding whether or not they will serve God or a motivation to be righteous is whether or not you believe in the resurrection or believe in God's power to resurrect the dead. Abraham faced the most difficult test of his life when God told him to go up on the mountain and offer his son. When the writer of Hebrews reflects upon that great challenge of faith that Abraham has, he tells us there in chapter 11, verse 17, that he was tested when he offered up Isaac. But then he says in verse 19 that he concluded that God was able to raise him up even from the dead from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Indicating that Abraham's willingness to take the knife out and be willing to take the life of his son was based upon the clear conviction that God could bring him back to life. That God was the one who gave life. Job's conclusion in Job chapter 19, verse 25, 
For I know that my Redeemer lives, and He shall stand at last on the earth. And, that, and after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. And over and over again in the Old Testament, though it may not... It may not be as apparent to us in the New Testament, but over and over again, even in the Old Testament, faith in the resurrection, the fact that God could bring back to life, motivate His servants. David and Isaiah and Daniel and Hosea all expressed this aspect that God was the one who gave life. And then he says, <coughs> until, excuse me, until the appearing of our <coughs> Lord Jesus Christ... <coughs> Excuse me, which he will bring about at the proper time. <clears throat> Paul mentions the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what's that mean? Well, the word there is epiphania. It's a word that's often used to describe, of course, Jesus is appearing again the second, the second time. And I think that's the way it's being used here. That what Paul's urging Timothy to do is you remain faithful to God and you keep this charge how long? Until Jesus comes back again, until he appears. And that again is a is a powerful motivation for us that God is coming back, that Jesus is going to appear again, that even in the face of persecution and great difficulty, we can remain true to God because we know this is going to end well and Jesus is going to return. In Acts chapter 1, in verse 11, the angels told the disciples, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come just as the same way as you watched Him go up into heaven. So the angels themselves told the disciples, no doubt who were perplexed and maybe somewhat concerned about the fact that Jesus was leaving, is that you can remain faithful because He's going to come back again. The other motivating factor in Paul's mentioning of the appearance or the second coming of Jesus here is that God will bring this about at His own time. He says that Jesus will appear and He will bring it about at the proper time. There's some discussion of whether that He is God the Father or God the Son. But however way you look at it, what Paul's presenting here is that Jesus came to the earth the first time according to the timetable of God. And when He reappears, He will appear again according to God's timetable. He will do it just at the right time. Now again, that's motivational to know that God's not going to leave me hanging or abandon me or that somehow God's going to forget about what's going on or lose sight of what's taking place. And while my family is being persecuted or I'm being put to the test or my nation's crumbling around me and morality is going its own way, is God watching? Is God caring? What Paul says, don't forget that God's coming again and He will come at just the right time. That He's absolutely sovereign in all of this. And then as we mentioned, the next four verses, four phrases of this chapter perform, uh, provide a magnificent doxology of the character of God. He says, God... He who is blessed. And we usually don't think about God being blessed. Usually we think about God doing the blessing. But there are several places in Scripture where this particular word, makrios, is used to describe God Himself. It's the same word that Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And the word in the original language means to be happy or to be contented or to be fulfilled. Jesus... Paul uses it here to describe God. And that's an interesting thought, isn't it? That God is contented. That God is satisfied. That God is happy. There are things that go on in this world that don't make God pleased. That don't are not what God would want. We think about sin and certainly we recognize that God does not sin. God hates sin. And God always strives against individuals sinning and violating His Word. 
So what does God? What does it mean that God is blessed? Well, one I think element of this is that though there are things that do not please Him, nothing disturbs Him. Nothing gets God off course. He controls everything to His own joyous ends, and so no matter what happens, God is blessed. And in, and. The element of that we need in terms of motivational factor is that if God is contented, if God is satisfied, then He has the ability to make me satisfied and to bless me and to make me contented in my life. And that's exactly what God promised. Blessed are those who keep His commandments. The idea that there's a quality of life, of satisfied life that comes by serving God because God Himself is satisfied. The psalmist said, how blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. And James tells us in James chapter 1 that we need to be doers of the Word and the person that's a doer of the Word and not forgetful here, he is blessed in all that he does. Why? Because there's some inherent value in the things that he does? No, but because he's serving a God who is a blessed God. And then he says here that God is the only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The word translated sovereign here in the English Standard Version is also rendered as ruler, or some translations use the word potentate. There's a word we don't use very much. But the idea here means you see someone who is in power. The Greek word dunastes means uh, the aspect is a word that comes from a word group that means power or authority. So God's the powerful one. He is the one who is in charge. He is the sovereign one. And God's power to rule the Bible would teach us, is inherent within Himself. He doesn't get it from somewhere else. No one delegates it to Him. There's no one who vies for power, who in any way contests God for the power of this universe. In Isaiah chapter 43, Isaiah said, Indeed, before the day was, I am He, and there is no one who can deliver out of My hand. I will work, and who will reverse it? God does something. Who undoes it? Who can trump God and take away God's power? Isaiah understood that God was unique in His sovereignty. He wrote, To whom will you liken me that I should be His equal? In chapter 40, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The One who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of His might and the strength of His power, not one of them is missing. So the aspect that God is powerful and sovereign, you see, is a motivational factor for the child of God. That this is, you see, the one who's completely in control. Now Paul amplifies this aspect of sovereignty by using the phrase, He is King of kings and Lord of lords. Now that brings it down to where we're at. We know what a Lord is and a King is. We have people that rule over us that are in positions of authority, that make laws and that give, give, give individuals power, even delegate power to others to enforce law. But who's the greatest of all of those kings? The greatest of all of those rulers? Who's, who's in charge of them? And that's what the phrase indicates. Is that God is the ruler of rulers and He is the King of kings. Now such titles, such of those titles were given to God often in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 10, uh, Daniel chapter 2, the, the idea that God's in control of the nations of the world and He rules over, the nation, over those who are in charge, the emperors of the world. But it's also, as we mentioned before, that these words are used to describe the Lord Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 17 verse 14. In Revelation chapter 19 and verse 16, Jesus is called the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. So that presents maybe a question for us is who's being described here in this passage, in this doxology? Is it Jesus or is it God the Father? And again, there's some disagreement upon that but, and some different opinions about that. I believe it's possible that Paul 
was, was consciously dealing with the aspect of divinity from both perspectives. And that the Scriptures easily take designations that are assigned to God the Father and assign them to Jesus as well because Jesus is God. And always will be God. But also, the fact that Paul would tell Timothy that there is a king of your king, that there is a lord of your lord, was a way in which to confront emperor worship. Emperor worship and the the, the ability of the Roman government to enforce, enforce emperor worship become the greatest cause of persecution from this day forward in Timothy's life. The persecution that would come to first century Christians would come from their own government because the emperors were seen to be divine and you must bow down to them and burn incense to them because they are God. And Paul would tell Timothy, no, there is a king who is king of your king. He stands alone as the ruler of all rulers. So understanding the sovereignty of God, you see, helps us to not fear even the persecution from those who are over us. It removes the anxiety of life and gives us the courage to do what God would have us to do. He says God alone possesses immortality. Now again, this as well may be a a counter to imperial cult worship uh, because the Romans imagined the emperors were immortal and therefore they they never died. Uh, But God alone possesses immortality, Paul says. The word here is a word that means deathless. That... God doesn't die. He's not affected by die by death in any way. He has an unending quality of life. The same principle by which the writer of Hebrews argues for the superior nature of Jesus' high priesthood, that he's a priesthood that he's a high priest that doesn't die, and though he died, he ever lived to make intercession for us through the resurrection of the dead. But John chapter 5, verse 26, Jesus says, The Father has life in himself. And that particular phrase, the Father has life in Himself, would not only tell us that God creates life, but that God is life, and therefore cannot be affected by the opposite of that. That's encouraging when people are threatening to take your life. The worst thing that Paul could tell Timothy could ever be done to him is that someone come along and for his faith would take his life. And the encouragement and motivation to do what's right in the face of that is that God alone has immortality, and He's the giver of life. But then he says as well that God dwells in an approachable life which no man has seen or can see. Fifty years ago, at least next month I think, fifty years ago last uh, next month, we landed a person on the moon. That, that actually happened. I'm not one of these things that think they staged I think that actually happened, that we landed a man on the moon fifty years ago. When do you think we're going to land on the sun? That next? Well, we look at the sun and we recognize from what we know about it that probably not in the discussion, there's probably not a lot of missions to land on the sun. Why? Because the sun's 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit on its surface and 24 million degrees below its surface. There's just not any way we can even get close to the sun with anything that we can build. The sun is an unapproachable light. It's so bright, it's so hot, you can't get close. And so Paul says that God has lives or dwells in unapproachable light. Now Paul's not saying God lives on the sun. He's not talking about spiritual light. But the concept is the same. That light 
can be unapproachable. That light in Scripture represents truth and holiness, represents what God has presented to us in terms of morality. And this characteristic of God makes Him absolutely unapproachable by His very nature in at least two ways. God is unapproachable because we are sinners. And because God is absolutely morally without sin, never does anything wrong, and absolute holiness, we cannot come close to Him. We as sinners cannot draw near to Him. The only way that can happen is for there to be a propitiation. If there is an intercession, is there some way that we can be made holy and God can invite us into His presence? In the fifth Psalm, verse 4, for you, are, for you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. And that was the point, one of the major points of all of the laws and commandments in the Old Testament concerning the priesthood and the tabernacle and the sanctuary and the most holy place and the garments and the sacrifices is that God was holy. He was transcendent in every way. And you just can't walk up and say hi. If you're going to come into the presence of God, you must be cleansed and made holy. A sacrifice must be made for you. That the approaching God is through His initiative, not mine. God told Moses, You cannot see my face, for no man can see my face and live. Exodus chapter 33. But Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once off, far off, have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made both one, has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in His flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in Himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, that He might reconcile them to God in one body through the cross. We can approach God now, because God has made a way. But God's also unapproachable in His light because light is revelation and light is truth. And no man can discover what's true about God. We might come to the conclusion that there is a God, like Paul mentions in Romans chapter 1, that we can see and be thankful for what we see around us and we can see His, his divinity and the, and the visible things around us. But what can we know about God apart from His revelation? Can we know about His character? Can we understand or discover who He is unless He tells us? So Paul said, who can know the mind of God except the Spirit of God? Martin Luther called God the hidden God. And what he meant by that was that apart from revelation, God is absolutely unapproachable. We don't know what to do to please Him or what would displease Him unless He tells us. And praise God He has told us who He is. And that's a motivational factor that God has, the unapproachable God has approached us and made it possible for us to please Him. And we can then serve Him. And so we are living for Him and in Him. What motivates you to exercise yourself toward godliness? What encourages you to face the obstacles that you may face as a Christian? To live a life for God? To even suffer for the cause of Christ? There are powerful motivations, I believe, in Paul's doxology here. There are reasons that Paul gives that we might not ordinarily consider that I will fulfill my charge before God not because of who I am or because of what will come to me, but because of inherently who God is Himself. I will place, I will fulfill the charge I have before God, you see, because He is the God who gives life to all things and can resurrect the dead. I will serve God because He is a God who's in full control of every event of life, that He's sovereign over everything, and that He will send Jesus to judge this world, balance all the scales at the end of time, just as the right time. I will serve God because He is a consuming fire. That He is a holy God. 
That He's never frustrated or disturbed by the events of life. That He's blessed and can bless me as the one who is truly blessed. I will serve God because He's the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and there's nothing anyone in power over me or government over me and any position of authority over me who can take away the authority of God's will in my life and in my heart. He is a God who cannot die. He is a God who has conquered death. He is a God who has the moral purity that sets aside every law of man and makes His law better than anything any man could devise, not only for society, but more importantly, for my ability to come into His presence. He has made a pathway for me to come through that unapproachable light. Even though I'm a sinner, He has made a pathway for me to come near to Him through the sacrifice of His Son. I say all of that about the character of God as a doxological motivation to understand that where this leads me is back to Calvary. Is that where it leads you? That everything that God is and everything that He's told us about Himself ultimately in terms of the personal application leads me to the cross because all of that, you see, is frightening and terrifying unless Jesus dies on the cross. And then the fact that God gives life and the fact that God is sovereign and the fact that God judges the world and the fact you see that God is unapproachable, all of that becomes great powerful spiritual motivation because Jesus died on the cross and He rose from the dead. And that's about me and that's about you. God is a God I can serve because God is a God who loves me. Because God is a God who has made a way for me. And that's why Paul at the end of this ends it just the way every doxology should. To Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Say amen. Amen. God is good to us. Will you come to Him? Be a servant. Will you, watch, will you allow Him to watch over you and bless you, protect you, provide for you life and bring you back to life though you're spiritually dead? That happens only through the death of Jesus Christ and His resurrection from the dead. And your willingness to join Jesus in that victory so that as, even as Ken read for us this morning, you have been baptized been baptized in the death of Jesus Christ. And we know if we've been baptized in the death of Jesus Christ, we should also share with Him in His resurrection to life. Will you come repent of your sins and be baptized with the forgiveness of sins that you might share in the victory of God, that you might serve Him. While we stand and while we sing.